Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and today I'm going to be talking to Isla Hodgson and we're going to be looking at the conflict between gamekeepers and conservationists as well as talking a little bit about basking sharks which is one of her major passions. Before I start I got some lovely feedback from a chap called Tony who asked if I was going to be doing a podcast on baiting. I am going to cover some of the ethical stuff uh, next week as I have Alan McFadden on who runs some photography hides in Dumfries and we'll be chatting about photo hides and baiting and I may even at some point do a whole podcast on ethics because it's a huge issue, a uh, bloody minefield really but I'd quite like to talk about it, give my personal viewpoints and maybe do that at some other point. However first uh, we're going to cover the news. So I think for many children growing up in the 90s, dinosaurs were a huge obsession, no small part because of Jurassic Park. So I always keep an eye out for dinosaur news. I used to be able to name every dinosaur on crap now, but I did see something that cropped up this week about the Spinosaurus, and it's changed slightly. So Spinosaurus are colossal. They're one of the largest land carnivores ever, reaching 7 tonnes and 50 feet long. That's way bigger than a T-Rex. Now recently, on an archaeological dig in Morocco, they found the most complete fossil of a Spinosaurus tail. And for years, we thought that they had tails like other theropods, bipedal dinosaurs like T-Rex. You know, if you think back to Jurassic Park 3, you know, the crap one, the tail was quite slender. But we now know that this is wrong, and that its tail was more like a paddle. Think of a, a giant newt or a crocodile, suggesting it spent more time in the water than we'd previously thought. Now it's not thought that it spent all of its time in the water, but it was certainly semi-aquatic, which is bonkers. A semi-aquatic giant predatory dinosaur. That's awesome. And another semi-aquatic creature is Isla Hodgson, who spends a lot of her time swimming with basking sharks, but also is a research scientist, and in particular has been looking at both sides of the game shooting and conservationist conflict. So I was really excited to chat to her about this work. So hello, Isla. No, Isla. Isla. Isla? Yeah. No, sorry, I'm getting your name I wrong now. With, with Isla if you want. <laughs> what, what do you prefer to be called? Because I think I kept calling um, Isabel, I think, was at the Grand Arms. I kept calling you and I thought, that's not a bloody name. I'm used to it because um, I was called Isla, but I grew up in Newcastle, so no one knew how to pronounce it, so it's totally okay. fine. Um, just call me Isla. Isla, okay. So, All right, then. So we'll like go with Island, that. but without the ND on the end. Great, I can I could probably manage that. <laughs> well, look, uh, well, thanks for joining me on the podcast. No worries, thanks for having me. So you have a PhD in conservation conflict. What drew you to that? Really good question. Yeah, it still feels a bit weird when people uh, say to me, "You have a PhD," <laughs> even though it was a year and a half ago. Yeah, so it's a funny story. Um, my career has been slightly wonky. Um, I always say so it was never really a clear trajectory so um, I started out as a marine scientist so I did a marine biology degree I specialized in marine mammal habitat use and then I kind of had an idea of I wanted to go off on a sort of filmmaking career that was my that was where I was heading and then just gradually as I kind of was working through my master's I started to kind of figure out well where can I make the most difference so what are the biggest problems that we're seeing cropping up time and time again and something that I'd experienced you know going through my undergraduate degree and then going into the master's um, and I did a little bit of work out in uh, South Africa so I worked there for a couple of months and 
we were coming up time and time again against this thing called conflict, which a lot of us assume to be when humans or wildlife are having an adverse impact on one another. And what we try and do naturally is mitigate that impact. So try and either keep humans and wildlife away from each other or, you know, try and limit the impacts that wildlife are having on human lives and livelihoods. And, and I kind of fell into that trap a little bit. So I got really, really interested in those dynamics. But as time went on and, you know, I got more interested in the subject, I began to realize that, you know, these these things weren't really working. So we were coming up against um, scientific barriers, we're coming up against policy barriers. And also people kind of weren't really responding very well to those interventions. So I met a guy called Steve Redpath, who we would call the godfather of conservation conflicts. He came up with the term. And he uh, just went into his office and was having kind of conversations with him um, about the subject area. And I said, you know, I'm really, really interested in learning a bit more about this. And I wanted to make a film on it. Um, and he said, well, actually, have you ever thought about doing a PhD? <laughs> and, and I was like, no, not really, not for me. I'm not into the academic sort of lifestyle. And he sent one of his students to kind of chat to me and she did a lot of kind of filmmaking and sci-com stuff on the side. And she kind of said to me, if you're really interested in this subject, that's the route you should go down for a PhD. That's what a PhD is all about, is kind of getting really into one subject. So I decided to explore the world of conservation conflicts a little bit more because it seemed to me as one of these big, very important problems that we don't really have an answer to just yet in the conservation sphere. So, so yeah, I kind of decided to do a PhD. <laughs> Why not? Why not? And it's not as black and white as people think, is it? Oh, definitely not. Um, definitely not. So as I was saying earlier, we kind of, we assume these problems are, we either assume they're between humans and wildlife. So humans are being impacted by wildlife or vice versa. Or we, we tend to think of them as kind of like a conflict between interest groups. So we see there being, you know, say, for example, there's agriculture or game shooting or hunting, which we see as kind of like, I wouldn't say an anti-conservation interest, but it's sort of like a different interest. And then you have conservation on the other side of it. So we see these two sort of separate interest groups and we see conflict as these two interest groups sort of not being able to see eye to eye and coming to loggerheads with one another. So our obvious route to try and solve these problems is to either figure out a compromise or figure out a way that, you know, one side can be appeased. Um, so whether that's, you know, the introduction of protective legislation or whether that's providing compensation to a farmer that's experiencing negative impacts. But quite often that's not the whole story. I like to describe conflicts as kind of like an iceberg. So what I've just described there, that's really what's on the surface. So that's what we talk about all the time. They're very visible impacts. So things like, um, you know, financial, financial problems or, you know, something that's very, very easy to see and record. But what we don't see is the stuff underneath the surface. So this is kind of all the less visible parts. And that's the stuff that will sink the ship eventually if we don't address it properly and we don't navigate it. And all this stuff underneath the surface is the more 
social and political issues. So I like to call them the sort of messy, the messy human side, as it were, and they're often, they're often not easily connected to conservation. So you might have something that's happened, you know, way in the past that's fractured relationships and created tensions, but that's brought forwards to now. It's just not talked about, but it affects how people react with one another and how people react towards, you know, react towards conservation interventions, for example. They might feel, for example, in Europe, you've got a big conflict with wolves over there, um, especially in Scandinavia, where, you know, you're getting uh, levels of predation or people are worried about the impacts that wolves are going to have. A lot of um, researchers have actually found out that the resistance toward the wolf isn't just about impacts on livestock for example it's due to a kind of feeling of the state trying to oppress rural livelihoods and a lot of the resistance comes from that so this right. is the kind of thing that makes it extremely messy and very very hard to to understand and so we tend to miss those aspects even though they are quite a big part of it they are the root causes of the conflict yeah well you, it's interesting because you get groups for example like the rspb who employ shooters for for pests for you know things like maybe foxes or uh, or um corvids that predate nests but then you also get say shooting organizations that do a lot of conservation so it's not it's it's shades of gray isn't it yeah absolutely um absolutely and it's very it's very easy it's it's you almost want to simplify the problem because it just seems so massive when you look at all the little intricacies of it um, and all the nuances, but the nuances are the things that are going to help us sort of move forwards with things. Basically, what we do when we split people into two categories is you're almost increasing that polarization further. Um, whereas there's a lot of individual differences, like you said, between within these groups that are many, many different shades of grey. So you might have often you get these interest groups and you have people who have extreme, very extreme views on either side. But then you always have more people in the middle who kind of have a bit more of a, a, you know, a bit more of an understanding of each side. But it's very, very difficult to sort of tease out those voices from the very, very antagonistic ones that you often see on social media. Or, you know, there's, there's a phrase called, you know, those who shout the loudest. Yeah, so we, we see that a lot of the time. Um, and it is extremely hard to kind of, you need a lot of time and a lot of effort to be able to kind of tease out those um you know less antagonistic voices the ones that have a slightly different perspective yeah i think to, to quote your bbc wildlife article which is where i first come across you but it, it's more than just the bird isn't it yeah <laughs> yes it is yeah um and you can you can take that quote and you can apply that to many of the different conflicts so you know you have ones over wildlife which are the ones we see a lot so you know it's more than just the birds but then you also have you know, quarrels over how land should be managed. So if we, you know, fall back on the grouse moor debate, you know, that's not just about the illegal persecution of hen harriers, although that is a very big issue. It's also about land ownership, access, rights. Um, you know, some people say it's about class. You know, it's there's many, many different issues that are sort of thrown into the mixing pot, but we often only talk about one. And so when it comes to trying to overcome these conflicts, we don't, we don't talk about the complexity, we don't talk about the nuance, we tend to focus on one issue. And that issue tends to be the one that causes the most controversy and gets people the most angry. And so we never quite get to move past that. 
that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I guess I suppose I lean more towards the conservationist side, but even within conservation, it's quite a fractured. It's not like it's not one one kind of movement. There's so many different groups that don't necessarily agree how you should just do conservation. I was like, well, no, we should do this and should do that, which is always mm -hmm. difficult if you're trying to work together to do something if not everyone gets on in the first instance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the greatest examples of that is rewilding. So there yeah. isn't really there isn't really a broadly agreed definition of what rewilding actually is and what it would mean and what it would entail. People have very different ideas and there's a whole spectrum of what people think rewilding means, what how we would do it in the first place, you know, would there be a little bit of human intervention, would there not be? And you find, I find it really interesting, there's always these kinds of dynamics where within a group you find that there's there's still disagreements and there's still discord, but when it comes to something that threatens the group, then you form an almost group identity and then you start to attack the other group. You see it all the time, so when I was doing my PhD, for example, we always throw gamekeepers into one category, but you would have gamekeepers from driven grouse moors, from walked up shooting, you would have people who were deer stalkers, you know, and they all had very different perspectives and they all thought different things about each other. Yeah. Um, so you get, you get that kind of dynamic everywhere. So yeah, for sure, it's way more complicated than, than we first think. And I think the first step to kind of actually really tackling the problem is acknowledging that it is incredibly messy and it is very complicated and it's not just going to be you know a, a, a one answer to the problem you know we need many many different tactics to get past it. Yeah definitely for sure and I, and I think what's interesting about you is that you immersed yourself into both sides you you didn't just stick on one camp so you you did some beating, you were a labourer, I think, and you monitored raptors as well. So you got that perspective from, from both camps. Yeah, completely by accident as well. I kind of, <laughs> kind of had to. Um, so they always tell you with research that you should, if my supervisors are listening, I did have a very strict methodology that I followed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I think, because I, I came, like I said, I came from a natural science background. So my first introduction to conflicts was actually seals and salmon. And um, okay. I came at it from a very sort of ecological perspective. So I was studying seal behavior. I was doing scat analysis. Um, and I was looking to see whether they were actually predating on salmon. And I went and presented my research um, to the fisheries board. And I actually, my work actually showed in a way that the seals were probably not having that big of an impact on the salmon stuff and yet as you can probably predict that didn't go down very well <laughs> I had a very no. had a very naive view of how that was going to go I thought I was going to solve all these problems and everyone yeah. was going to go okay that's great and um, whereas it didn't actually happen like that so when it came to do my PhD I had a I already had a, a bit of knowledge about how to maybe speak I've always been very good with people which I suppose in hindsight was a skill that I never thought I would have to use in a career as a zoologist, but it's actually really, really come out in the last couple of years. But still, I kind of, at first, I attacked it with a very ecology-focused hat on. So I wanted to find out what gamekeepers' attitudes towards birds of prey were and the different 
potential management interventions that we could potentially roll out and that was about it um and then i went to you know i was going to these kind of big stakeholder meetings and i was going to game estates and trying to get them to talk to me about birds of prey which didn't go down well at all and so no one no one wanted to speak to me about it unsurprisingly because i was like i said i was a bit naive and i we deliberately chose a conflict I didn't know anything about so that I wasn't going to be biased yeah. in any way. But to get people to actually open up and speak to me, I kind of had to take a slightly different route. So instead of knocking on people's doors and, and saying, you know, can you talk to me about this really controversial issue that you quite clearly don't want to talk about, to just sort of getting to know people first and getting people to know me. Um, and that involved, you know, working on a few estates during the summer. So before the main, so that the, for those that don't know, the grouse shooting season is very, very short. So it starts on August the 12th, but before that they're working all year round to kind of maintain the estate and, you know, make it suitable for the shooting season. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and that a lot of that, you get the best reactions out of people I find when, you're on their terms and you're on their turf and they feel comfortable so a lot of you know professions where people work outdoors for example that's where they're going to be the most comfortable they're not going to be very comfortable sitting in a stuffy room with you kind of like straight across the table yeah and some of the best conversations i had were those very informal ones where we were just working together outdoors and we were, you know, managing the estate. And when you're a beater as well, you're in a whole line of people who are kind of going through this very physical, this very hard physical labor. And you kind of, you almost bond with people over it. And, you know, people, because they're comfortable, they naturally start to talk to you about these kind of big issues. And as we were having conversations, I started to hear this, these phrases being thrown around. So it's almost like people used very, I would say conflict type language, which was talking about it's us versus them. There's a tribe mentality. And it was more to do with relationships and trust and politics than it was to do with the birds at all or things like economics or anything like that. Um, and so I started to talk to different parties of people to see if this was the same kind of on, as you would call it, the other side. So I talked to members of government, I talked to the landowners, so not just the gamekeepers. I also went out with the raptor monitors as well. So there's a lot of volunteer raptor monitors that go out, monitor nests, and I just asked if I could go along with them. So it was the same thing. I began to realize that both sides were kind of saying the same thing about each other. So it was, you know, kind of throwing blame onto the other camp or, feeling very threatened by the amount of power that the other side, they thought the other side had. And that's when I started to, thought, started to think, hang on a minute, this isn't a case of having negative attitudes towards a bit of prey. It's a case of having negative, negative attitudes towards each other, but not really speaking to each other enough to figure out that's how the other side actually thinks. So they both um, thought the same thing about each other, basically, but didn't realise it. Pretty, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. So both sides kind of fell on the back foot. So I'd say there was, there was one big commonality between the two, which is both sides had a very sort of, or most people had a perception of feeling on the back foot and feeling threatened by the other side and thinking the other side had more power than them. The other side had the ear of the government, for example. 
Um, and this had two kind of main reactions. So this wasn't based on interest group. This was just based on different people. Um, but people who felt that they, there were very low levels of trust, felt kind of threatened and very powerless. They either had the reaction of, we want to fight our corner. So we want to, there's no one else that can speak for us. So we're going to speak for ourselves. Or there were people who completely disengaged with the situation. So they felt extremely underrepresented, very powerless. They felt kind of embarrassed about what was going on sort of at a national level. And so they stayed out of it. The problem to me with that aspect of it is, is that then all we're left with is the very antagonistic we won't back down kind of voices and you know the other ones are sort of pushed to the side and then you did have this third category which was people who felt a little bit more accepting of the other side's views they didn't necessarily agreed with them but they understood and they were willing perhaps to engage a little bit more with the debate and sort of have a constructive debate so they they both they all described wanting to kind of move past it but the difference with those people were was that they had better relationships with each other. They had better levels of trust. And I mean, trust not just towards the other side, but towards government and towards kind of the national actors. And they felt a bit more rep well represented. So they didn't feel so at risk and they didn't feel so threatened. But that kind of group of people was very small. <laughs> yeah, I so, can imagine. Yeah, so... I mean, this is a, we're talking about a conflict here that has a huge history and so much has happened. You know, illegal killing is obviously a massive sticking issue for some people. So that hasn't shown much signs of going away. And that's kind of dissolved a lot of trust, you know, amongst a lot of people. So we're bound to end up in this position. But yeah, so when I actually delved into it and I actually got much, much deeper, you saw, you began to understand the mechanisms as to why people were acting the way they were. And it did have a big effect on how people would engage with management efforts. So the people that would go into multi-stakeholder meetings were those people who felt very, who felt wronged and felt very antagonistic. And they weren't actually going to collaborate. They were going to stand up for themselves. Whereas the people, people who felt very powerless deliberately didn't go because they felt their voices wouldn't be heard and there was no point um, and they would be drowned out by those who shouted the loudest type thing. So, and I, from, so since I worked on my PhD, I took on a consultancy for WWF and the Luke Hoffman Institute. Um, and that was like a global analysis of trends in human wildlife conflict or conservation conflict as we call it and looking at kind of the commonalities between these situations and a lot of the literature sort of supports mine in that we're seeing these patterns of you know how things are governed these politics relationships between people like these are the really important factors that are stopping us from moving forwards with these situations um, so it's not just the grouse shooting debate and we're seeing it, you know, and, and now still, I'm still in research, but we kind of look at these more global trends um, in my research team and we are seeing that there's, there's very similar issues that keep cropping up. Do you find that being a young woman, does that help you open or get people to open up to you more than you think maybe if it was, maybe if it was a guy, I don't know if that, if that's a, if there's anything in that, or do you think that um, would help people open up to you? I think I think it's kind of hard to see. Um, yeah. 
I mean, I think in the grouse shooting thing, in the in the grouse shooting thing, in my PhD, that yeah. massive thing that I did. <laughs> I think it definitely helped, but just because it's such a male-dominated yeah, that's industry. that was my thinking. Just maybe they're more I don't know less likely to have their guard up. Yeah, kind of in a way. <laughs> okay, <laughs> in a way, but it still it still took me about two years to get people to. Sort oh really? Of yeah, okay. it took a long time, just because it's such a sensitive subject. Yeah. I think I mean, I don't want to generalise, but I think definitely, like I said, I'm a people person, so yes, I have a yeah. lot of empathy. I respond quite naturally to how people are feeling. So if someone's extremely uh, extremely nervous, for example, you're not going to go straight in with the hard-hitting questions. You're going to yeah. come into it a little bit. So I think that requires that requires a lot of empathy and you also need to be very clear and consistent in what your research is about and what it's going to be used for to kind of help people trust you a little bit more. I was reading a really interesting article actually, sorry to bring up the, the recent situation, um, no. but I was reading a really interesting article about leadership and kind of what the qualities have been across the globe for leaders to be successful. And one of those key things is empathy. So understanding how people are going to be feeling in these situations and gearing your, your communication to that. Um, yeah. and that helps in all aspects of life, whether that's sort of interviewing someone for a project or whether that's, you know, leading a big conservation project. You need empathy to see how that's going to affect the people on the ground. So, yeah, I, I don't know if that's something that women naturally have more um, I don't know if it's because it was a male-dominated industry, but I suppose if I was going to go into a different situation, so say where it was a bit more 50-50 or it was, you know, more dominated by women, I, you know, it might be a completely different story. And um, we don't know. But just just as a kind of interesting thing as well, is something that we're thinking more about with conflict research is the fact that a lot of times we're talking about conflicts with industries that are quite male dominated. So you're talking about things like agriculture or fisheries or land management. And although it's, you know, it's moving on a lot, it's getting more equal. There are certain cultures where women are traditionally either oppressed or they're not part of the conversation, but they do have very, very important voices when it comes to conflict or it comes to land use and access and rights and things. So we are having discussions about how we, bring those missing voices back into the conversation a bit but yeah it's a, it's a really interesting question um, yeah I, I didn't yeah I didn't mean to throw you that one off I mean I just wondered if there was something that, you, that you'd that you'd noticed with that so yeah I think I only I only really I only really gave it much thought when someone else mentioned it to me so you talk okay. about the BBC wildlife article and they said they asked exactly the same question and it's it is really hard to say but you know possibly possibly or maybe yeah. it's just kind of natural natural elements that I had in my personality that, that helped. Or maybe because I was just completely clueless about the whole <laughs> situation. So I went into it, I went into it completely, uh, I wouldn't say blind, because I did obviously know what was going on, but I'd, I'd come from the marine sphere. So I knew a lot about marine conflicts, but not so much about land use. I think maybe I was just naturally a bit more curious and a bit more inquisitive. I didn't have any sort of preconceived ideas of what people were going to say and I didn't kind of want to bias them too much in one direction. So I just kind of let tell me what they thought was important. 
and also I had the advantage of time as well I had three years to sort of have these discussions and things so yeah yeah, interesting question though so yeah so like you were saying you you came into this unbiased and you're you're quite an empathic person so did you find yourself leaning to one side more than the other because obviously you've got to try and remain impartial during this haven't you yeah yeah you do and that's one of the hardest bits it's one of the hardest parts about researching conflicts because I can't deny that I come from a conservation background I like I said you know did a I wanted to work with animals. I was really passionate about communicating about wildlife and I still am. So you can't deny, I mean, you say you try and be unbiased, but no person can ever be truly impartial. The, the easiest way for me to get around that was for me to see it as I am a scientist. So any scientist has to be completely objective about their subjects and their data. And so while I was working in that project, that was my role as a scientist. So. It didn't matter what my personal opinions were. It didn't matter what my personal values were. I just had to report what was in my data and had to put that out into the world. So it was it was really challenging at some points. You know, sometimes people will say things that you completely disagree with, but you keep having to remind yourself, as a scientist, your role is to be objective. Yes, there is a level of interpretation involved, but the nice thing about doing interviews, for example, is that you have your interview data and you can use quotes to show to back your your points up and things so and um, so yeah it, it's there's no shying away from the fact it is a challenge but as long as I think you're aware of that I think you have to be quite self-aware and not let it affect how you behave in the interviews the questions you ask um, and how you interpret your data so you know I think that's kind of all you can do. And we've had discussions like that in our research team. We've had discussions on courses I've been on about, I've done a few courses in conflict facilitation and mediation. So how to help, how to guide people towards reaching a shared conclusion, for example, or, you know, how to talk to one another. The role is the same. You kind of have to be a blank canvas. You have to be quite unbiased, but it's really unrealistic to expect someone to be completely impartial so it's almost like taking a step back and having a look at yourself and saying okay am I am I being as impartial as I can be and and being quite self-aware in that respect yeah I I know what you mean I mean I I work a lot with a lot of river keepers um, Mm -hmm. when I do the fish work and obviously I'm mainly known for the fish but I love all wildlife and I love all river wildlife and anglers and otters don't always get along And and I've had river keepers casually mentioned that you know they've shot an otter or something like that and I'm just a bit like well you really shouldn't be telling me these things you know oh there's there's a big pit there's a seal over there and you're like well you know why why are you telling me this and it's quite it's because I'm working with this person but you you have to you know rein it in a little bit so it's difficult isn't it when you've got strong feelings about these things exactly but I think as well like people see conflict as a negative thing like they see it as something that's to be avoided and it's to be overcome but in actual fact if you think about it everything we're talking about with healthy relationships is that arguments are fine it's okay to disagree on things it's okay to debate it's okay to try and you know put your point across it's okay to have an opinion but as long as you can move past that and you can respect one another's views and values and use it as a as a catalyst for positive change you know so conflict on 
disagreements, conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, and a lot of people have asked me as well, like, what do you do um, when a gamekeeper, for example, asks you what you think? Um, yeah, yeah. And you are, you are told as a, as a golden rule, you are told as a golden rule that you should not voice your opinion at all. You should not put your, your value across. And I kind of thought, well, I'm asking them to tell me honestly what they think. I'm asking them to be vulnerable with me. So I can't really then become a faceless robot and say to them, well, my opinion doesn't matter because it, mm. it does to them. You're trying to build trust. So I would always be honest. I would always, always say, well, you know, I am from a, I'm from a conservation background. So I do find some aspects, for example, say of grouse shooting or the land management there, I do find some of that from an ecological perspective quite quite difficult, but it doesn't mean that it's going to affect how I see you. Yeah. And so that's just my so that's how I would react in that situation. Because because it's true, that is just how I think. <laughs> so you know, I I found for me in that specific situation that helped that helped people to see me as a human being rather than and also you, you're trying not to raise people's expectations too much. Yeah. Um, so you don't want to say to them, oh, no, I'm completely on your side. And then your research comes out and they're like, oh, well, what about this? Yeah, thing you said to I guess yeah. you're burning bridges then as well, aren't you? Because they're never going to want anything to, you know, if, say if, you're, if something cropped up and you need to do more work on it, they're going to be like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So i think yeah it's quite difficult because you're asking for people's time as well and you're asking people for quite for someone to be really honest with you and trust you with that information particularly on such a sensitive subject and this doesn't matter which side they're on you know it's it's hard for people to talk about their their values and their kind of identity so you want to respect that as much as possible um, and there is a little bit of a pressure when it comes to writing up your research and there are some elements of it that you know are going to upset one side or the other so you try and do it as respectfully as possible and you know you're they're not you know you're not doing them a favor they're doing you a favor yeah. so it's important to keep that in mind but it is extremely difficult which is why I said earlier that we decided not to go with a marine conflict because I don't know whether I would have been able to do that in that in that situation well, well like you say that's your that's your background and that leads me nicely on to my last question which is obviously when you're yeah. not not playing referee to angry birders you're more likely <laughs> to be found in the water aren't you and yeah. you work with arguably one of the most charismatic and, and interesting british uh, wildlife that we've got around our coastlines don't you um, yes, I do. I do. The Baskin shark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> the, no, no, the nudibranch. Sorry. <laughs> I do love nudibranchs. Yeah, no, to be fair, they are very interesting. So I'm doing a disservice to nudibranchs. But no, I was alluding to basking sharks. Yes. Um, yeah, of course. So um, I like to keep my toes in the water, literally. By, uh, I'm a scuba diver. I also do, I'm also trained for sea search. So that's the kind of citizen science program where people go and record marine habitats and the species that they're in them. And then last summer, I started working for Baskin Sharks Scotland, who are a really cool organisation on the West Coast. So based in Oban most of the year, and then at the peak season, we go out to the Isle of Col. 
Um, and we basically um, research and take people in the water with basking sharks. So we give them a kind of um, immersive experience, if you like. So you're but, collecting, sorry, so you're collecting data while you're taking people out to see them as well. It's not just like a fun trip yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we have kind of like a dual purpose. So the first one is to educate and raise awareness. We take people in the water but we're we're very um focused on the shark's welfare so it's not as if we just pile a load of people into the water we do a lot of training with them previously we follow the wise oceans scheme so our skippers are very highly trained to minimize disturbance we only take four maximum of four people in the water with them at a time because you know you want to minimize disturbance on these animals as much as possible but while we're in the water because no one the best thing about the baskin shark so just as a bit of background um they're on average eight to ten meters long massive animal it's a big fish um, it's a big fish yeah. yeah their dorsal fin alone is one meter high so you can't miss it in the water it's pretty <laughs> cool but we don't know much about them at all um so they're a very sort of elusive species we know that they come up to the surface to breed and uh, not to breed sorry to feed every every year they feed on plankton so they're filter feeders like other large sharks like the whale shark um, and basically all they're interested in all summer is finding as many, you know, of these tiny little crustaceans called copepods, as many of them to feed on as possible. But that's about as much as we know about them. Um, we know from recent satellite tagging data that they undertake huge migrations. So you're talking thousands of kilometers and over winter they go deep. So they go, some have been recorded over a thousand meters deep. But what they're actually doing down there, we have no idea. We don't know how they breed. We don't know how they mate. We don't know where they give birth. And um, so there's a lot of stuff we don't really know about them. So what we try and do is we use the opportunity of tourism to research the Baskin sharks as well. So we take as much data as we possibly can. So we look at unusual markings. So we see whether the same individuals are returning to the same sites every year. We sex the sharks, so we look at whether it's male or female, what the size of it is, um, any odd behaviours, anything like that. Um, how many parasites they have on them, because sometimes they have parasitic lampreys. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then every September we do a dedicated research trip. So we do things like plankton sampling. So we found a few interesting things out, such as the sharks like, they don't just like any any copepod they like a specific genus called Calanus, and even more specific they prefer a certain size so they actually look for concentrations where they've got big fat juicy ones which makes sense <laughs> and we also have noticed i mean it's not enough evidence to make a, a proper scientific conclusion but we have noticed that unfortunately microplastics are the same size as the plankton that they like to feed on so the chances are that they might be filtering them out from the water, but we don't know. So yeah, so I basically um, keep in touch with the marine side of things through my work with Baskin Shark Scotland, and I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to be a guide with them because they're very, very respectful of the wildlife. And if we don't feel it's safe or we don't feel that the sharks are going to respond that well, we just don't go in the water with them. Equally, if we are in the water and we have an encounter and the shark's visibly not happy, then we get out, you know, so it's, it's very respectful of the wildlife and we try and teach people as much as we can. So we also take them to the kelp forests 
and to teach them about kelp forests and the wildlife around there, teach them about seabirds, just kind of try and teach them about the wider marine ecosystem. I, I find that bonkers yeah. that the second largest fish in the world and we know so little about it. It's just incredible. It is. I mean, I guess it's it's for a couple of reasons. Um, so the first one is that the Baskin shark was really extensively hunted right up until uh, 1998 I think yeah. was the time it got um, yeah I was just about to say that it was it wasn't that long ago really was it no so we're looking at like just over 20 years ago yeah and the, I mean there, there were huge fisheries some massive ones so there there were some in Scandinavia but there were loads around the coast of Scotland and Ireland for example because we are one of the hotspots for Baskin sharks which is really awesome but they have this huge oily liver so it can be about a quarter maybe even a third of its body size and it contains shark oil so something called squalene which was used traditionally in oil lamps mainly but it is also used in cosmetics and perfumes and things like that and because baskin sharks are i don't know if you've ever seen one I've but not, they're... unfortunately. No, I'm dying to. <laughs> As you well know, I'm dying to. Yes, yes, I do. You come out with us. But yeah. they're, they're pretty dopey. Um, so they're not really thinking about much other than where the plankton is. They're quite a slow-moving species. They're right at the surface. They don't have much... I mean, if you know what you're doing, so say you're a fisherman, you know what you're doing, and you follow them slowly enough and quietly enough, they won't notice you there. So they're quite easy to you know for someone to catch or harpoon or whatever so yeah so they were their population was really massively decimated by that um so we're only just really seeing the recovery now so we don't know how many individuals there are out there in the north atlantic population and also you've got the second reason is that our technology is advancing as we speak so it's really hard to tag a shark yeah. <laughs> um, or get any sort of data off a shark you know, especially if they're going as deep as the Baskin sharks are. So we're only just progress we're only just catching up enough to learn more about them. So there was a really cool um genetic tagging study. I don't know if you saw it. I did. Um, Wasn't this where they found out that there's two different populations or something? Is it the ones in the North Atlantic are different to the ones in the northeast? Is that right? Yeah, I think I think we're talking about the same study. So the one I'm talking about was led by uh, Dr. Lillian Lever. And okay. um, so that was about I think we probably are talking about the same one, um, but one of their other findings was that they returned to the same sites okay. year on year, um, and the groups that they're returning in have a high level of relatedness, which yes, essentially that... means that they're, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. essentially yeah. means that they're, they're kind of traveling with extended family, which is kind of, kind of cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, it was mainly the females that were doing that. So it's almost like you and your third cousin twice removed going back to your favourite restaurant kind of thing. Yeah. So we're, we're finding out more about them all the time. But yeah, they're just a really, they're a really awesome species. Nothing beats seeing one of them in the water. So we, we kind of, we see them, see the fin, often you see the nose, you see the tail and that's how you know it's, know it's a Baskin shark and they're just tracking straight through the water. And so we try and, our skipper will try and line us up so we're sort of being dropped in front of the shark almost so we're being dropped in its in its path yeah um, just let them come to you yeah and hopefully if you get a good if all the stars align then you shouldn't have to move that much sometimes we do have to 
get people to swim a little bit or one of us will hold your hand and basically pull you (laughs) (laughs) in the water but you wait until the fin sort of like lined up with you and you can see it's tracking towards you um and at the just at the right moment you get people to lie flat perfectly still fins out the water um and all you have to do is put your head down because you're wearing a suit that's so thick you're so buoyant you couldn't sink even if you tried people do (laughs) (laughs) um but you can't and you just wait for it and it just seems to come out of nowhere this like massive great big mouth with all these um you can see the gill rakers this perfect white gill rakers and you honestly even though you've you've seen that you've had that experience so many times there is nothing that stops you from going because there's like (laughs) a huge shark coming towards you with its mouth wide open your natural reaction is to swim away (laughs) (laughs) but they're so cool and they just come towards you and they'll either sort of like pass right by or they'll go underneath but they're just not that they're just not bothered as long as you just stay nice and still and quiet they're just not that bothered they're like oh oh there's something there (laughs) well you know fret to them are then they're not aggressive so no they're not i mean there has there was one occasion where a guy got really freaked out and his natural reaction was to because now it's sometimes you do you can't stop yourself from panicking because there's a huge shock and it's literally gone right in between your legs <laughs> and to try and stay still in that situation for some people is really hard so he just he he tried to sit up in the water and his fins just came down he didn't hit the shark but his fins just came down in the water and it just it just freaked out a little bit but all it did was just flip whip its tail and just swim the other direction yeah they're not they're not aggressive they're not out to they're not out to get you um but obviously you do that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be respectful of it so no um yeah so yeah it's a really really cool thing and i mean even if it wasn't the sharks we were seeing even if it was just hanging out around the sea of the hebrides it's just amazing like the amount of life that's there is phenomenal and it's so nice to be able to i think what i think you'll agree with me one of the nicest things about science communication about filmmaking about any role like that is that you're actually seeing people in real time see these things for the first time and be like really amazed by them oh yeah so you, definitely yeah you can even even swim down to the kelp pick up a starfish and people are just minds blown <laughs> yeah. by it it's really cool it's it's um, great it, it's another world isn't it and i'm quite yeah. glad that i've been able to showcase on my podcast one minute we've got gamekeepers conflict and then basking sharks and it's segued <laughs> really nice i didn't think we you'd did. be able to link those two so that that was great well yeah i mean like so i wear two different hats really so (laughs) like i said where can i make the most difference so conflict is one of the biggest problems i mean that's going to affect baskin sharks as well it affects every single species and habitat that we basically have so trying to figure out how we can move past these better in a more efficient way in a more effective way is very important but also at the same time hanging out with cool animals and educating people about them is also really important. So I'm, I'm really, really, really lucky that I get to do both at the same time. <laughs> no, definitely. I, I, I certainly envy you with, with, with the Baskers for sure. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Isla. No worries. Thanks for having me on. No worries. And yeah, I'm definitely going to try and get up there and, and hop on a boat and see some basking sharks with you at some point. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Jack. That was Isla Hodgson. I think it's fantastic to hear both sides. Often we tend to be so entrenched in one camp 
that you forget that these are people on the other sides and they've got their own experiences of these different things. Now this brings me to Nature Reserve of the Week and I figured I'd go big this time. I'm going to go for Rutland Water. It covers 4,200 acres. That's not just the lake but surrounding countryside also. But Rutland Water is the largest man-made lake in England by surface area and one of the largest in Europe. 971 acres is managed by Leicestershire and Rutland Wildlife Trust and is home to the British Birdwatching Fair every August, affectionately known as Bird Fair. Some people call it the Glastonbury of wildlife watching. I think that's a little bit mis-selling it. You're not going to see too many people out of their tits on uh, acid at Bird Fair. Maybe the odd one, but it's a bit tamer than that. But it's well worth a visit if you've never been to Bird Fair. The reservoir is home to internationally important numbers of breeding birds, like 4% of Europe's gadwell. Uh, great white egret are pretty common there now as well, so more and more birds are turning up. Ospreys are probably what Rutland is most known for, certainly within England, and some were taken in Scotland in 1996 and reintroduced there. So ospreys are now a very common sight on the uh, on the lake. There's a nest cam on one of the piers, so you can regularly see them, and obviously while we're all locked indoors at the minute, it's great to check in and see how those ospreys are doing. Not too far away, you've got Hornmill Trout Farm, and this is actually a photography setup where you can go in and photograph these ospreys. These ospreys have been visiting the trout farm for years, way before the photographers started taking the odd small trout. And rather than get mad, they set up a photography business. So it's a really, really successful hive. Osprey's coming in the morning. I think it's open March to September. Well worth a visit if you want to get diving osprey shots. I think it's the only place in England that you can do that. Now there are eight nests of ospreys, but only one of them is actually on Rutland Water. The rest are all in the surrounding countryside. There are two visitor centres, the Angling Water Birdwatching Centre and the Linden Visitors Centre. And they've both got facilities, uh, no calf, but refreshments available with toilets and all that kind of stuff. There are 31 hides there. That's bonkers. So plenty of places to watch the wildlife, including one that overlooks the osprey nest. And you can watch these ospreys coming in. There are six Angling Water Centres. All of those have parking, they have toilets, and four of them have better food and drink facilities. So they're not the kind of specifically catered for wildlife, but you can go and have a, a meal and stuff if you really want to do that. It's six pounds to enter the reserve, and obviously there are discounts for Leicestershire and Rutland Wildlife Trust members. So it's a huge place, well worth visiting if you're in the area. And if you are coming specifically for the bird fair, it's worth coming a day or two early, or maybe staying a day or two late, and exploring this incredible nature reserve. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers.